So this evening, the title of the talk could be To Self or Not to Self? That is a question. <laughs> because I think this is partly what this uh, practice is about and what you find in the Buddhist tradition, that it be the Vipassana tradition or the Zen tradition. There is often a lot of talk about not-self. But I think in a way, looking, following a little from what I was saying in the instruction, that what we're trying to do is to cultivate concentration, to cultivate experiential inquiry. And I think as we do this, we develop more creative awareness. But also, if we do this within a silent atmosphere, then we really have, as Stephen suggested, the opportunity to look, to see what is it I think about. What, what, because in a way, what I think about is going to de determine a lot what I say, what I do, how I relate. And to me, that's what it showed me, that it doesn't matter so much what kind of practice we do, as long as we cultivate together the concentration and the inquiry. Because also in Korea, they don't talk much about mindfulness or sati. And they talk a lot about questioning within doing the practice for about six months. One of my main first, I would say, insight was to be sitting in meditation. And as I was sitting in meditation, asking, what is this? I suddenly became so aware and became, I think, for the first time, really clearly aware of my thought. And what I thought was that at that moment, most of my thoughts were about me. And so what I could see in action was selfing. That actually, if we look at our thought, a lot is about, look at me, look at me. What about me? You know, I am here. You know, what is better for me? What is not so good for me? And it's very interesting to see that it's very kind of, uh, in a way one could say, self-referential. Of course, I mean, you know, if we don't think about ourselves, nobody is going to do it for us. So, of course, there is. I think what we have to see that when we talk about not-self, it doesn't mean that there is no self whatsoever, but that we start to look at the self in different ways. And I think what we have to see when I talk of selfing or not-selfing is, in a way, what kind of selfing are we doing? And I think with the creative awareness we develop in meditation, we can see that actually there is a positive selfing, but there is also a negative selfing, a painful selfing, which really, in a way, blocks us, in a way, kind of cuts us off from others. 
And so I think it's very important to see that when we become more aware of our thought, for example, to see that some is good thought. We can have, you know, positive thought. We can have harmless thought. We can have wise thought, compassionate thought. And I think to be more aware of that is very important. To see, oh, I am not just this terrible person all the time, just thinking about myself. But at the same time, we can see there is some thought, what I would call more negative selfing loop, which are very tightening, very automatic. It's kind of like a groove. And that's why I would say that when we cultivate the meditation, we're not trying to stop the thought, but we're trying to actually become more aware what is going on in this moment. Because a lot of the time we saw either ahead of ourselves or caught in some kind of selfing accomplishment, we actually don't look, but what is the shape of that selfing? How does it work? What happened? Is it helpful or unhelpful? And so, in terms of that, looking a little at the not-selfing, I wanted to talk about the symbol of awakening that actually are represented in what we do each morning and each evening. We light the candle, we light the incense, and we put water in the bowl. And actually this is kind of like an offering we could see, but in Korea they see it much more as a reminder that actually each of them are a symbol of an aspect of awakening. And most of it actually is about selfing in a different way or not selfing in a wise and compassionate way. So the first one is a candle. So when the candle is lit, it, it does two things, which is interesting, is that it gives light. And as it gives light, it disappears. So it's a symbol of selflessness, in a way of forgetting ourselves, of not having this such a rigid, fixed sense of self, but a more loose, kind of a dissolving sense of self. And the other aspect of that is that when the candle is lit, it illuminates. But it illuminates in two ways. One, it self-illuminates. So it is illuminated for itself. But also, it is illuminating, which means it kind of gives light to others as well. So to see awakening, not just for myself, but awakening for others. That I don't just awaken for myself, but I awaken for others. And in the awakening, I will benefit others. I will have a different relationship with others. The second one is the incense. And there's the same thing happen. That as the incense, in a way, give its fragrance, it disappears. So again, the symbol of selflessness 
of dissolution, which I think is one of the thing, main things that we do. Although it doesn't look like it as we sit on the cushion and you might seem, feel like you, know, you have a lot of thought and all things kind of going on. Actually, a lot of what we do when we sit here, when we walk, is actually releasing, dissolving that really fixed, solid sense of self. So that then we can move to a more spacious, open sense of self, where we kind of start to dissolve the fixity and through that can again meet more the world and others. And this is the other aspect of the incense, is that its perfume goes everywhere. And the, and the incense don't say, well, I don't like them over there. I'm just going to go that way. It goes everywhere. And so in a way, often with that uh, feeling of self, that kind of rigid, painful sense of self, there is also this, what is me and mine? And then generally we look just a certain way and we consider only what is connected to me. And we kind of, in a way, generally ignore or put aside the wider perspective. And I think one of the things, the key to awakening, is moving from that narrow me-mind perspective to a more, in a way, pervasive encounter with the whole world, with the whole of life, with the all of existence, of which I am a part but I am not the center of the universe. I might be the center of my universe, but I am not the center of the whole universe. Because often that's the way we might feel. And I think that pervasiveness is helping us to become part of life, to become one part of this flow of life, instead of feeling this acute sense of being the center of it all which actually makes us a little tense. And through that we can relax, to, okay, I'm just a little part of it, and then it kind of has a more measured way of being in the world. And the last one, the water, again has two aspects. One is the fact that, again, the water is very adaptable. It adapts to any containers, any shape. And so that, in a way, with this awakening, there is this notion of fluidity, of flexibility. And I think in terms of the meditation we're doing at the moment, the questioning, this is one of the effects I would consider to be quite positive with this practice, is that by questioning repeatedly in this way, in this meditative way, it actually helps us to be more like water, to be more flexible, to be less rigid, to be more fluid. So in a way, kind of flowing with the condition of life instead of fighting with it. And the other aspect of the water is that it reflects. And it reflects whatever comes above it, just as it appears. That it be something wonderful, that it be something terrible, it just reflected as it is. 
And then when the thing goes, the monster or the angel, nothing is left. So this, again, this, what I would call, not grasping, but a not grasping which is also full of a creativity, what I would call creative engagement. And so, in a way, when we do the, the bowing with the candle, the incense, and the water, we're actually, in a way, reminding ourselves of our possibility for being like a candle, for being like the incense, for being like water. And then I wanted to say just a few words about the, the bowing. And I know some of you might be familiar with it, some of you might not be familiar with it. And in a way, the reason other retreats we do, we don't do the bowing. But when we do this Korean-style retreat, in a way, by doing the bowing, in a way, we connect it to the tradition, and we also, in a way, connect it to the gratitude that we have. They have this concept in Korea of earning which means, in a way, kind of like a debt, but not a debt that you have to repay as much as a gratitude that fills your heart. And then you want to make it alive in whatever way you can. And so to me, when we do the bowing, in a way, it's like showing our gratitude, our respect for the tradition. And of course, we don't just repeat the tradition. And of course... We kind of modernize it a little and do different things to it. But within that, really that respect and that gratitude for all the years, we were able to practice there. And in a way, when we do the bowing, generally we bow three times to the Buddha, to the Dharma, to the Sangha. And in a way, when we bow to the Buddha, we're actually bowing to our potential in this moment. I think it's very important to see that that's one of very important Zen ideas, the fact that we all have the potential to become a Buddha. We all can have the wisdom and the compassion of the Buddha. There is this quote where it said, if you have an awakened thought, you are a Buddha. If you have a foolish thought, you are a sentient being. One moment you might have a thought caught with grasping, then you're a sentient being. The next moment you can have a thought which is really open, generous, wise, and compassionate, and that is manifesting the Buddha. So in a way, when we bow to the Buddha, we're really bowing to our potential. We're bowing in a way... We kind of, in a way, in the bowing, we are having faith, confidence in the fact that we too can have Buddha moment, can be more like a Buddha, aspire to be like a Buddha, to have the same wisdom, the same compassion. Then the Dharma, the Dharma is actually the practice. There is a teaching. Generally, the Dharma is seen as a teaching of the Buddha. But in a way, the teachings are not alive if we don't practice it. 
So when in a way we bow to the Dharma, we in a way connected, grounding into our practice. Because each of us, we are practicing for ourselves. But we are practicing for ourselves so that we can go back into the world. So in a way we connect to our possibility for practice, for wisdom, for compassion, for creative awareness. And the last one is, in a way, bowing to the Sangha, bowing to the community, and in a way connecting to the fact that although we sit and we're on the retreat in silence, we are in silence but together, which enables us to be, in a way, a different kind of community, that we connect, we communicate in a different way. We are supportive of each other. We support ourselves through supporting others. And so we are by ourselves in one way, but we also are with others. And I think that's what we're bowing to, we're connecting to, with this bowing to the Sangha. And so in a way, when we practice the meditation, when we are on a retreat, we develop this creative awareness and in a way it helps us, no matter what method we use, that it be the breath or questioning or the listening or any other method. Actually, what to me one of the main things that happen with this creative awareness is to become aware of conditions. And this is a key in a way with the not-self. To see that the not-self is not about not existing. The not-self is not about becoming this empty all or disappearing. But that actually is looking at ourselves in a different way. Because often we have this feeling that in a way the self is like a little cube within our body somewhere. And then everything that happens to it gets stuck to it. But in a way, when we meditate, we realize the self does not exist as a fixed, independent entity, but that actually we are a flow of conditions, a flow of inner conditions meeting outer conditions. And so to see that in a way, when we cultivate the meditation, it's not so much to reach a certain meditative state, or that might happen, and I'll talk more about it another day. But actually, I would say it's more to become aware that we are less fixed and solid as we think we are, and that actually we are more like a flow of conditions. There is a little kind of uh, exercise you can do. Maybe you could try it tomorrow. And instead of thinking, this is like, you know, how does it feel? I mean, so far nobody has done this. But how it would feel if suddenly you come to the room and somebody is sitting on my cushion, on <laughs> my chair. Generally there would be some, wait a minute, you know, this is my and how would it be if you say, 
ah, this flow of condition is using this cushion. This flow of condition is eating. This flow of condition is breathing. This flow of condition is resting. I'm not saying you should do this all the time. It gets a little kind of, you know, mechanical. But I think it's interesting to look like when we think, ah, it's kind of like, I, there is an I on which everything sticks and it becomes me. When actually what we're trying to do with the creative awareness, what I think we discover is that actually we are relatively consistent in some way. I mean, tomorrow, mo- tomorrow morning, it's very unlikely that I will become a pink rabbit. That, I think, is very unlikely. But, I mean, I could have a heart attack in a night. That's more likely. So there is a certain consistency, but within that consistency, there are different conditions coming together. And so I can have different experience with this inner condition meeting outer condition. And then what becomes interesting in terms of the not-self and the selfing, is to see how a lot of the time we grasp at one of the conditions that forms us. And then we reduce ourselves to that. And I think this is one of the most painful things we do, is this grasping and reducing ourselves to one thing that is happening in our experience. And what we have to see with grasping is that when we grasp, we identify, I, me, mine, and then we limit ourselves to what we grasp at, we solidify around it, and then we magnify it. And then we amplify. This is what is problematic with grasping and identification what I would call grasping selfing, is that then you amplify what you grasp and you stuck to what you're grasping at. And this is one way you can notice what I call grasping selfing, is when you find yourself proliferating, going into abstraction or exaggeration. And in both cases, you have amplification. And in a way, the creative awareness is to help us in being more in the present. doesn't mean that the present is sacred and better than the past or the future. But so that we see the present is not fixed. The present moves. That's the thing with the present. It moves. So you have a bit of the past, a bit of the present, a bit of the future. So we kind of move. And I think the creative awareness is helping us to flow with that flowing present instead of grasping at elements of it and then the stasis. So you're grasping to this element and you say, this is me. And then generally there is no movement. And then there is generally this amplification. So let me explain a little what I mean. by looking at the different things we might grasp at. For example, 
We easily, you might have done so today, I find myself doing that today at some point, grasping at a thought, identifying with a thought. You can identify with many different thoughts. For example, I am hopeless, or I am mindless, or I am stupid, or I am a failure. Recently, I was uh, teaching in Australia, and they had this very, uh, we have two boards, we had two small boards, it was kind of a little, kind of a, not an uh, ordinary retreat center, it was just some place that was rented, and so they had things a bit makeshift, so they had two boards on which we could put notes and things, and one was an ordinary kind of white board, and the other one was an old-fashioned board with legs like this, kind of a little slanted. Mm-hmm. And so I had to look at both boards. And again and again, I would bang my toe on the board feet, foot. You know, bang! You know, and I did it many times. You know, one time, two times, third time. By the fourth time, I could barely walk. And I was starting to think, wait a minute, I am mindless, you know? I mean, I teach mindfulness, I've been practicing creative awareness for so many years. How come I keep banging my foot on that board? And I realized the problem was thinking I was mindful. That by thinking I was mindful, I did not realize I was spatially challenged. That I, I could be mindful, but being, I was basically spatially challenged. And once I saw, I was not either I am mindful or I am mindless. I realized there is some spatial challenge here. How can I creatively engage with that? And then I started to really kind of go round, like a big kind of, you know. And then I could get a little closer. And after that, I did not bang my foot anymore, and I could, I could walk. But it showed, like, if you think, I am like this, then you're not going to investigate, because in a way you fix. Or if you think, I am stupid, like, I use computer, I'm not very techy, I can use it a bit. But trying to do the recording, you know, this friend tell me, please record. I say, okay, I'll use the iPad, you know, and I record the thing. And then it disappeared. You know, I mean, I recorded it. And then it was gone. You know, and I could have thought, I am stupid, I'm always stupid, I can't do this. But I thought, wait a minute. I must have missed a procedure here. So I looked at the explanation, I thought, ah, I had to press done. And then once I press done, then it's recorded. So I thought, now I don't make the mistake again. But if you think, I'm always stupid, then you don't do anything. You don't creatively engage with the situation. Or if you think, I am a failure. I always fail. I am a king gardener. And we live in the south of France. And I see these three trees I love in all other gardens. They have mimosa. They have... uh, a very beautiful pink tree, they have a very beautiful bell, a climber, and I tried many times. 
Each of them I tried three times to plant them. And every time they died. You know? And I could think, God, I'm a terrible gardener. Forget about gardening. I am a failure. I can't garden. But instead I thought, this garden is not propitious. The conditions are not propitious with this tree. I better enjoy in other garden, but not in mine. The problem was tr- keeping on trying when the conditions were saying, doesn't look right, doesn't, it's not going to work. Then we have a feeling. So, in a way, feelings are very strong. You suddenly, <gasps> you feel something. You feel, <gasps> Fear, or you feel low mood, or you feel angry, I'm going to get them. So we feel things. And the meditation is not to stop us to have feelings, but in a way to see that they are functions, that they are just part of the human organism. But if the feeling becomes really habituated, Then we grasp at them, we identify with them, and then we fix ourselves. And then also the feeling amplifies. I am angry. I am an angry person. This is it. And then you, you know, but are we angry all the time? This is where impermanence comes in. Are we sad all the time, angry all the time, fearful all the time, happy all the time? It depends on conditions. This is where the condition comes in. And so I would say the creative awareness can help us to start to creatively engage with feelings instead of grasping and identifying. I am this. I am this sadness. And then it becomes, I am only the sadness. Or I'm only the anger and nothing else. Instead, when we are, in a way, especially on a meditation retreat, and time to time we have funny feelings, and instead of naming them, this is something we can experiment with. Instead of naming the feeling, this is fear, and then you have this whole storyline around it, or sadness and the storyline, or anger, or happiness, or whatever, How does it feel in the body? Just where do I feel it? And how is it within itself? Does it change? What is its texture? And then this is what I use very much in daily life. If I have a funny feeling, I think, hmm, I have this funny feeling. How long is it going to last? Recently, I mean, my mother is losing a little of memory. And then it becomes a little tricky uh, doing certain things because she, somebody tells her something, the doctor tells her something, and then she supposedly heard it, and then she tells me, but, you know, this is not working. And I said, but the doctor said that if you wait two hours, it will be fine. It is not working. It's painful now. And so sometimes I feel like, oh, and kind of, you know, I have a funny feeling, kind of a little heavy feeling of concern, of, you know, different things. 
But is, instead of being upset about it, I kind of look, how long does it last? And generally one or two hours. And it's the same with my mother, how long does it last? Generally one or two hours, and then something else happens. And she too changes. But then if it does not change, if it continues, then what can I do with this? What is going on? What is a difficulty? What is a challenge? And then I can creatively engage with it instead of, it's like this, it's never going to change, it's always like that. Then it becomes very difficult, very fixed. And another thing we can grasp at is sensations. And I don't know today if you had some grasping at sensations, you know, and if you identified with the sensation and thought this is going to last the whole week. I mean, if it's really painful, sit on a chair. That's what I would recommend. But personally, I think I had a, a lot of ex my experiences actually of not-self, of emptiness. I've been with uh, dealing with pain when sitting in meditation. Because in Korea, you sat 10 hours a day and as I said before, it was 50 minutes, 5-0, and then you walk 10 minutes, and you do that 10 times in the day. And, so by, and I was never a great sitter. I was not like, I have friends, they can sit for hours. They don't move, they're just amazing. Me, I was never like that. But I could do it a bit. But by the end of the day, the last sitting, oh, it was painful. And it was very interesting because sometimes if I had enough energy in the creative awareness, I would go inside the experience of the sensation, the burning, the moving, and then I would just experience emptiness. Just the fact it was just sensation arising, passing away. And then the bell would ring or the jupi would be hit, and then I was fine. Knowing the next morning I would be better. Even knowing the next evening it would be bad again. But I was very aware of the changing nature of it. That it was not all the time the same. And then I could see that sometimes I was overwhelmed by it. And sometimes I could just bear it. I would just bear with it and just be with it. And sometimes I could really go into it and experience it so differently. So this is what, in a way, if we identify, then we magnify, and then it's really so much harder to deal with. When if we, in a way, try to creatively engage, okay, this is happening, but I am not just that sensation. My teacher would never did the mindfulness practice and never ever did the body scanning. Actually had a wonderful experience at the beginning of his journey that he recounted to us. And he was saying, you know, he was you know, just a young monk and he had been practicing for a little bit the question, what is this, what is this? And then it was on the traveling season and so he was visiting a temple and suddenly he got so unwell. He really felt terrible. 
But generally after three days, unless you decide to stay in the monastery, you have to go. So his friend, he was traveling with his monk friend, said, you know, we need to go, we have to go, we can't stay here. And then there was, you know, my teacher said, I can't move, it's so painful, I'm a terrible state, I can't go, I can't move. And then he's like, come on, come on, you know, we have to go. And then Master Cousin thought, okay, let's find this pain. I feel terrible. Where is it? You know, if it's myself, it's, it's part of this self, where is it? So then he do, actually, I think what he did was a body scanning. He looks through the whole body. And he cannot find the pain. And then immediately he felt better. <laughs> and I think what happened is that the magnifying effect disappeared as soon as he looked into it with vipassana, with this creative awareness. And then he was able to leave. I'm not saying that it works every time to do this. <laughs> sometimes it works and sometimes the pain is really there. But I think... In a way, it's, it's to see how am I identifying with this sensation? How am I identifying with my physical uh, physicality? How am I identifying, for example, with an illness? For example, I have sciatica and stomach pain. I mean, before I came here for the last half hour, I have had kind of pain. I often get this pain, so I think it comes, it goes, it's generally nothing much. It just, what happens? It just conditions. But sometimes you have something which is more, more life-threatening. And then the thing is, do it, you identify with that? I am that. I am my life-threatening illness. And then everything stops. I have a friend at the moment who is a great inspiration to me because he has leukemia, but it's not like a kind of a terrible fast one. It's a slow one. And we don't know. I mean, it's a life-threatening illness. We don't know what's going to happen to him. But what I'm really so impressed is that he doesn't let it define him. He doesn't let him stop him from doing long walks, from teaching, from doing all kinds of things. And when I see him, I don't see him as, ah, that my friend with the leukemia, and then in me fixing him in that. I see him as my great friend. I love so dearly. We're so amazing. And he happened to have a life-threatening illness. And so, of course, we talk about his illness, but not just that. We talk about all the other things that he does. And so, in a way to see that when we identify and grasp, that not only we limit ourselves, but we often can limit others, especially if we see them just in one, that person who has that feeling or that thought or that illness. And another thing we can grasp at identify with is our role. I am a mother. I am a teacher. I am an artist. And then, but 
we're not mother all the time. I mean, I am not a mother, but I'm a, a sister, a daughter, but I'm not a daughter all the time. I am a teacher, but if I was starting to teach everybody all the time, this would be really tiring for myself and tiring for others, you know. In certain conditions, I am a teacher. In other conditions, I'm just an ordinary human being. And to me, this is, in a way, our main role is being a human being. And I think when we're on a retreat like this, is trying to be, to become the best human being we can become in the condition we encounter. Because this is a difficulty with the role. Not only can you identify with one role, I am a mother, a teacher, an artist. But then you have the next grasping. I must be the ideal mother. And you see all these articles in the paper about being ideal mothers. I mean, the responsibility. But I mean, ideal mother, when you've not slept all night, I think this is tough. This is tough. It's not easy. Conditions. Idealism is when there is no conditions. But that's not possible. This is abstraction. And I think that's what creative engagement does is making us be in the experience. Instead of grasping and identifying, often we go into abstraction, idealism, which is not what is going on. Like maybe one thing you might grasp at the moment is being a perfect meditator. So there is you sitting here, And next to you, you might be grasping at the ideal meditator. And the ideal meditator, perfect meditator, has very little thought, is never sleepy, floats a little above the ground, (laughs) has no pain. And compared to that, I mean, you are really not up to it. But this ideal meditator does not exist. The only one that exists is the one here and now. And time to time, he or she might be a little sleepy, a little distracted, quiet and clear. And just in a way, being really present to that. Being in a way creatively engaged with this human being in this moment who is really trying the best he or she can within the condition in which he or she finds themselves. And i like to finish with two quotes. One is from Tawe, who is one of the great uh, founders, in a way, of the technique, of the questioning meditation. And he used to correspond a lot with lay people. And so somebody wrote him a letter. That was in the 121100 in China. And this is what Tawe, Master Tawe says. Your letter informs me that your root nature is dim and dull. 
the one who can recognize dim and dull is not dim and dull. Get it? Shall I repeat it? Okay. Your letter informs me that your rude nature is dim and dull. The one who can recognize dim and dull is definitely not dim and dull. So when you see that you are sleepy or that you are distracted, creative awareness in action. And then I wanted to finish with two poems from uh, a Korean nun who is uh, dead now, but she was one of my great inspiration when I was in Korea. She was one of the most wonderful nuns, and I uh, wrote about her autobiography. So this is two poems she wrote. Buddha cannot see Buddha, sees Buddha. I cannot see I, see I. I saw the nature Awaken to the way. What rubbish. Then the next one. Clear water flows over white rock. The autumn moon shines bright. So clear is the original face. Who dare say it is or is not? So that's what I wanted uh, to share with you today. And then there is a little time for questions and comments. I have two questions about the breath, and if it's okay, I'd like to cover them tomorrow for the instructions, because I think it might be more fitting. Otherwise, are there any questions or comments? Yes. Um, to ask you, um, why do you think we grasp and try to identify with things? Uh, in, uh, when we come in contact, I think it's a very... I think it's, in a way, the way we would look at it in terms of uh, the Buddhist meditation is when you come into contact through the senses. For, for example, you hear a sound. You can just hear it. You can just be aware of it. Or you can go, hmm, I like this sound. Oh, I hope it continues. That's grasping and identifying, because, you know, for myself. Or, see, I come into contact with these flowers. Hmm, nice flowers. I like them. I want them. Where could I put them in my garden? And which garden center should I go to to get it? Would it grow well in my garden? Or I just see them and admire them and appreciate them. The, the appreciation, then you don't have the grasping. But as soon as you say, I like it, I want it, and then you generally proliferate with it. Or you can... Uh, an easy one for food. Food, a food is a very good one. You know, you eat the, I don't know, 
chocolate cake, ice cream, or whatever. Mmm, I like it. I want more. And if you're sharing it with others, I want more for me. You might notice when you are at the end of the queues and you see everybody taking lots of food and think, what about me? You know, I want some. I'm not saying you should not have food, but you can see. You see where there is a grasping and then you worry and, you know, if I can't eat and I won't be able to meditate, you know, and I can't do this. And you, shh, you can really proliferate. Or... Negatively, we do the same. You know, when something, ah, this is horrible, I can't stand it. Instead, okay, how can I creatively engage with it? So the way we would see it is that at the moment of contact with the senses, mind included in the senses, then in a way you have the opportunity to grasp or the choice to creatively engage. And so in a way what we're doing through the process of meditation is moving from this immediate grasping or rejecting to creatively engaging. So that's what we're trying to do. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.